0: I'll give you an official good morning, Redeemer Church. It's great to have you this morning. If you're visiting with us, we actually have a ton of visitors for a church our size. I think there are some from Georgia, some from Maryland, some from as far away as Childersburg, and even Bonaire. Um, So uh, thank you for every one of you who are with us, and we hope you have a great time. We have a lunch, a meal after the service, and so you are welcome and invited to join us for that as our guests. On Thursday afternoon of this last week, I had the privilege to stand in a local high school auditorium and speak to about 70 high school students and coaches. And I spoke to them about the most important thing in the universe and the most important decision that they will ever make with their lives, and it is the the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I spoke to them about. There's, There's no more important thing that you can address in your life than the gospel, and so, as many of you already have memorized the definition of the gospel, which is the good news of salvation through faith in the person and work of Jesus. Many of you already know that. You, you live by that. And so I took that message and that definition, and I went to these 70 students and coaches, and I declared the gospel for about 25 minutes in an auditorium in a local high school between fifth and sixth period. Now, as I began to declare to them about the gospel, I started talking about substitution. I said, you know, you guys are athletes, and you know what it means to have somebody substituted for you, and for you to substitute for someone. You know what that's like. You, you, if you're in the game, you go out of the game so that somebody on the bench can come in the game. Or sometimes when you're on the bench, you come in for somebody else, and they go out so that you can play in their place. You guys understand that, right? And they said, yeah, we, we understand that. And so I began to talk about how Jesus Christ is your substitute, that he's come in, in a sense, to play the game that you're supposed to play, to perform the way you're supposed to perform. The fact is, is that you dribbled the the ball off of your foot, you've missed every shot, you've turned the ball over at every opportunity, and even when it looked like you were doing good, you were failing. And Christ has come in and taken your place, and essentially he has lived Your life for you. And he never dribbled the ball off the foot. He never missed a shot. He always did what was right and good and pure and loving and gracious and merciful. His account that he stacked up before God was absolutely pristine and priceless. He fulfilled all righteousness. And in in doing so, you think he would be rewarded for that, but in essence, he got punished at the end of his life. Why? Because... What was credited to his account was not what he had built up his whole life. What was credited to his account was what you've built up your whole life. All of your sin, all of your dishonoring of your parents, all of your thieving, all all of your lying and your manipulating and all of your lifestyle choices that are unholy and impure, Christ, at the end of his life, got that credited to his account. And so God punished him on the cross and gave him hell, gave him condemnation on the cross. Why? Because y'all's accounts can be switched. You see, He took on your account of sin so you can take on His account of righteousness, His account of perfection and holiness and love so that when... God the Father looks on you and looks on your account. He looks in your account, and what does He see there? He sees love, mercy, graciousness, kindness, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. He sees all that in your account if you put your faith in Jesus because Jesus has been credited to you. Okay, now, I'm going through that. I'm so excited as I'm sharing how he's their substitute. I said, this is the deal. This is the deal, guys. Jesus once told a story. And he said, you can either be a wise man or a foolish man. The wise man built his house on the sand. And when the rains come and and the water rises up and the floods beat against that house, it falls down because it's built on the sand. But a wise man built his house on the rock so that when the rains come and the floods ascend and the wind beats up against that house, it stands, it does not fall because it's built on the rock. And the rock is Jesus Christ. And you have a choice today to give your life to Jesus Christ, to give Him and stand on Him, the rock. And I just want you to know, church, that I feel like George Whitfield, who said, when I preached the gospel... I feel the Lord's pleasure. And I want you to know, Thursday afternoon, I felt the pleasure of the Lord in that auditorium between 5th and 6th period. But there was a young man named Cade that came front and said to our other FCA guy, he said, I want to build my house on the rock. But then in front of 60-something other students, there was a, a young woman, probably 16 or 17 years old, who crossed all the way across the room And approached me, and I could tell she was sincere and genuine and troubled. Well, call her Sadie. And Sadie said, I want what what you're talking about. And I I said, Well, Sadie, do you believe the message that I just preached? She said, Yes. She says, I go to church every week, and I meet with my pastor and his wife frequently in their home. I started to be troubled. I said, so do you, do you try to live for God every day? And she said, I do. I try to love God. And I said, well, Sadie, let me just ask you this question. Do you wake up every day kind of like there's this cloud hanging over you, a cloud of guilt, a cloud like you're not doing enough? You're, you're not doing enough good works or you're not loving enough people well enough. And this cloud of guilt hangs over there so that you feel like you're just not doing enough to measure up to God. She said, that's exactly how I feel. I said, but you believe everything I just said about Jesus being your substitute. She said, I do. I said, if if you were to die today and be ushered into the presence of King Jesus, and he were to say, Sadie, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And she paused and she said, I tried my best to live for you. Church, this is what I believe. I believe that in Christian churches, good Christian churches all across our land, there are people who are trying to live for God, but they live with a cloud hanging over their head. Because they don't know the freedom and the joy and the pleasure and the exhilaration of having Jesus' account credited to yours and your account of failure credited to His. So that when you wake up in the morning, you can say, hallelujah, I belong to Christ. Hallelujah, I know Christ, I have freedom and joy. And this is the thing, that is the very reason why Paul writes the book of Philippians. He writes to this church, these Christian people, who preached the message and he says, more than anything else, I want you to know Christ because in knowing Christ, you know his righteousness, you know his holiness, his purity, and you know that positionally it is all credited to your account. And practically, it'll be worked out as you live a life of freedom, as you live a life of joy, as you know him. And so that, that's the whole point that he writes and that's the whole point of the Holy Spirit wanting us to study this book. So if you'll take a look at Philippians chapter 1, Let's go ahead and get a running start and let's read verses 1 through 7, what we saw last week, because this is all one section. And then we'll jump into verses 8 through 11 after we we read and, and look at those verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, And so keep your eyes on the text right there. Last week we saw that he gives a greeting of gospel partnership. He says... We are servants. We are slaves and you are saints. And this is what I wish for you. I wish for you to experience grace. I want you to know grace and peace in your life. And you know what, church? What I was saying to Sadie on Thursday afternoon was, Sadie, I want you to know grace. I don't want you to just know the definition. I don't want you to just know the right answers. I want you to feel sometime between fifth and sixth period, like right now, that God is pleased with you because Jesus lived your life for you and your your account is his account. Like, I want you to know that peace. And that's exactly what he's saying to them. And so he gives this greeting that says, I want you to be full of grace. And he says, I'm thankful for you. Like, I'm really thankful that you've partnered with me for all these years. And I'm confident because of your partnership and your good work that you belong to him. And he's going to complete his good work in you. And what we said last week is that it's God's work. God is doing the work. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, work out your own salvation for it is... God, who is at work in you. And, and, and he said, but it is a good work. You are doing some wonderful works of grace. And I just want to see those multiplied up until the day of Jesus Christ. And so then he says, I love you. I hold you in my heart. Man, my relationship is built on grace. It is proven through trials. And I love you with an intense, personal, intimate love. And so what we said, what we said is that true gospel partnership has an ever-increasing, never-diminishing experience of grace and love and joy. And so, Daniel, when when you and I continue to labor for the Lord a decade from now and two decades from now, there is a sense in which we love each other more, we encourage one another more, and we have an ever-increasing, never-diminishing experience of grace because we know each other and we partner in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it should like. So when I'm 60 and you're a lot younger, it should, it should look like that, all right? All right, so, so that, that leads us into 8 through 11. And so he says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Keep your eyes on the text. Keep your eyes on the text right there. All right. So Daniel Coleman, who is Paul's witness? God is his witness. He says, God is my witness. And so... He is saying something very significant, like you guys ever say, God is my witness. God is my witness. If you maybe if you ever have testified in court or something like that, God is my witness. That is a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Anyway, Paul is saying right there, he's saying, Timothy's with me and Epaphroditus was with me. And, and, you know, they see how much I talk about you. Timothy hears how much I pray for you. But only, only one person knows my heart, what is in the deep recesses of my heart and what my heart longs for and desires for, and it is God himself, the all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipotent God knows what's in my heart and he is my witness that I long for you. I have passion for you. I love you and God knows it. And so what he sees here is the what we see is the regard. And so the regard that Paul has for the Philippians is one of great affection. It is great passion. It is great love for them. And so that, this gets into the, the meat of the passage. So let's look at the request. He says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That's his request. Like if you're... If you want to kind of break down this this little section, this is the primary immediate request of the section. It is central. What is it that Paul wants? Paul's love for them, his passion for them, his regard for the Philippians is, is, is for one primary thing. He says, I want your love to increase. I want it to abound. I want it to overflow. That's the idea. of of the word abound, it is overflowing. It's more than enough. It is is huge. It is big. He says, I want your love, your agape love, to overflow and abound. Like, I just want you to have an experience and I want you to have the reputation of loving God and loving people, whether it's people inside the church, people in your community, people all over the world. I want your love to be so great that people see your love and could not believe the amount of love that you're able to give. That's it. It's an abounding love. It's huge. It's big. But church, please look down at the text. Because it's not indiscriminate love. It's not ignorant love. It's not blind love. What kind of love is it? How can it be described? With knowledge and what? And discernment. This is absolutely huge. Paul said, I, I don't want you to just have some feelings for people and then go out and do something because you have feelings for them. I don't want you to merely have sympathy for people and go out and just do something because you feel sympathy for people. I don't want you to just see a neighbor and say, you know what, I should probably practice random acts of kindness, like those bumper stickers say. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that your love needs to be not only informed by knowledge and discernment, it needs to be fueled by knowledge and discernment. I think Paul would say this. The... The more you know God, the better you can love people. The less you know God, the less you can really love people. Because this word knowledge, this word knowledge ultimately will make you ask the question, what is right? What is right? Like, I'm studying the Word of God I'm learning the Word of God. I'm growing in the knowledge of God. God tells me what's right. God tells me what's righteous. God tells me what is pure and what is holy. How can I take what God is showing me in His Word and apply it to the sympathy that I feel for my next door neighbor, for the compassion that I have for my coworker who's going through cancer, for my daughter who is struggling in a marriage that is very difficult? How can I do that? And not only what is right, listen, discernment asks the question, what is best in this specific situation? So you know what's right according to Scripture. You take what you know is right according to Scripture, and then you utilize the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you to give you guidance and direction so that you not only know what's right, you know what is best. And you package what is right and what is best combined with an increasing and abounding selfless love that's pursuing the highest good of the person or the persons that you're loving. And right there, you have the combination of how this world can be transformed. It can be flipped upside down for Jesus Christ. That's how it happens. But what happens is we don't, Either want to think, or we don't understand how, how, how important it is to meditate and think and read and learn and have the mind of Christ embedded into our own minds and into our own hearts. And so, in the name of love, we do things for people that we ought not do. We say things to people that we ought not say. And we're thinking, well, I'm just trying to love them. I'm just trying to care for them. I'm just trying to do what's good for them. And then we don't even understand love. A number of years ago, I had one of my friends who was in law enforcement was asked by a relative to get their son out of trouble. He had been doing some some things along the way, but he he finally broke into a building and went in and stole a bunch of stuff in that building and, and then jumped out of the same window that he had broken and the police caught him like red-handed. And that family asked my friend in law enforcement, we know you know the people who are in control. Would you please help get him out of this? And my friend said, I will not. Number one, it'd be unethical. But number two, your son is on a path to trouble and he needs to be woken up. And... I will not do it because I believe it is best for him to pay some type of penalty now than have to pay it later. That was like 20 years ago, and I can tell you that that guy has become a professional thief and manipulator and deceiver to those who are even closest to him, because he never has had to pay a penalty or a price that he needed to pay so to learn a lesson. But this is the thing: My friend knew what was right. He knew what was best. But you know what that family? You know what that family did to him? swore him off because he was unwilling to love their son during that time. You see, their understanding of love was not informed by Scripture. Their understanding of love was informed by an emotional sentimentalism that they don't want somebody that's dear to them to experience pain. But that is not anything that we read about in Scripture. And so what I'm saying is, church, If we want to do what the Holy Spirit is calling us to do, is we've got to know what's right. That is, what does God say about life? What does God say about decisions? What does God say about discernment? And then we've got to pray and ask God for the discernment to know how best to make decisions in difficult situations so that we can love people, care for people, and serve in this community in the best way. And So the request that He makes... He's saying, I want you to have an abundance of discerning love. Uh, If you're taking notes, write that down. I want you to have an abundance of discerning love. Not indiscriminate love, not blind love, not just I'm going to do something for somebody because it's going to be good. No, know what the Word of God says. Pray through the Word, own it for yourself, and trust the Holy Spirit to make the very best decision for the people that are in your lives, in your community, in your region, and in your world. When we made the decision to plant Redeemer Church, the elders of Grace Fellowship and the elders of of Anniston Bible Church, when we came together and we prayed and we studied and we sought unity and a vision and harmony, one of the things that we thought, church, was not, well, we just want another church. This is what we thought. We thought that there are people like Sadie who would say yes and amen to the gospel but believe that in some form or fashion they're working their way to God. And we don't want people in our county, in our region, to try to work their way to God when God has already worked His way to us through Jesus Christ. And so that motivated us to take resources and money and people and make investments that were significant. Why? Because we had a measure of discerning love for the people around us. All right. And when you make a decision to walk across the street to your neighbor who's struggling with cancer or going through radiation or something like that, and you don't offer them just a mere hallmark card and say, you know, wishing the best for you or good luck, but you write them a note that says, I have been praying for you daily that Christ will be sufficient to meet your need, and I'm trusting Him for that. I will come and be with you If you need any help, sincerely, your neighbor. You don't want to tell me there's something different between that and a regular Hallmark card? That's what's called discerning love. It's called love with knowledge, love with wisdom. And so that's what he's asking. "I'm, I'm praying, he says, that you will have an abundance of discerning love. Now that's primary as far as immediate is concerned. But church, what you and I want to observe is that that primary request... That immediate request that he wants them to abound in is for some results that he wants to see. Okay, so I'm making this request, and I'm making this request because I want to see results. And what are the results that Paul wants to see? Look down at the text. He says, I want you to have an abounding, discerning love so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So what, what, what are you saying, Paul? That's a lot of big words. It sounds wonderful, but what is that? And this is what he's saying. He said, I want you to have excellent decision-making. I want you to have pure living. I want you to have abundant fruit-bearing in your life. And, and, and this is the reason. Because, because... There's going to come a day. It's a day that we don't know when it is. We can't count it. There's no calendar that we can look on. We can't measure the Scriptures up against the calendar and try to predict when that day is going to happen. It's only only a day that God knows, but on that day, the Lamb of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Great I Am, is going to come down The clouds will split. He will be on a stallion. He will be clothed in robes of righteousness that are dripped with blood. And ultimately, every knee will bow before Him. And every tongue will confess that He is Lord. And everyone will give an account for the life that they lived, for the fruit that they bore, for the decisions that they made. And when that day comes, I want it to be a great day for you. I want it to be an exhilarating day for you. I want it to be an exciting day for you. So exciting and so exhilarating that your mind can't even conceive how great it is. And the only way that it's going to be that way is if you take on discerning love and good decision making and fruit bearing and say, you know what? this impure life that I'm living, these bad decisions that I'm making, this stuff that I'm doing late at night that nobody else knows about, how I'm spending my money on these wasteful things or how I'm spending my time with these people who are bringing me down. I'm wanting you to stop those things and see How worth it it is to get rid of the impure and to take on the pure because when you face Jesus Christ on that day and you have been saying no to impurity and yes to purity, you will say one thing, it was all worth it. It was all worth it. Saying no to sin and yes to Christ, saying no to impurity and yes to purity was all worth it. Christ, I finally see you. And... Paul is anticipating a day like that for these Philippians whom he loves and who he treasures, who he's very passionate about. And and church, I, I just, I want you to know that while Paul wants you to be joyful and happy and exhilarated in Christ every single day, and he absolutely does, it does not diminish his desire for you to grow in holiness. Like, he... Paul wanted the Philippians to literally look at their lives and say, you know what, I could probably get rid of that in my life and pursue Christ more. I could probably stop thinking in those very destructive terms and start putting on the mind of Christ, whatever is holy, whatever is lovely, whatever is good reputation. I could start meditating on the goodness and the grace of God in my life and I'll be taking on a more pure life. Paul wanted that. You see, this is the thing. Paul not only wanted you to experience positional righteousness in Christ. And by positional, I mean His account credited to yours. But He also wanted you to experience practical righteousness in Christ. So that day after day is an ever-increasing, never-diminishing desire to put on the holiness of Jesus in your own life. So I'll just ask you right now, church, where are you in your desire for purity? Thank are you simply satisfied that you have a positional righteousness in Jesus, that His account has been credited to yours? And because His account has been credited to yours, you really don't care a whole lot about how you live. You really don't care a whole lot about the shows that you watch. You don't really care a whole lot about the little snarky comments that you make to your spouse. You don't really care a whole lot about the smart aleck attitude that you have with your children. You don't really care about the really smart aleck attitude you have toward your parents. You don't care about those things not because I have positional righteousness in Christ, Paul would say, you better care about those. Christ is going to be revealed. And when you behold Him, you are going to give an account for the life that you live. Is your salvation at stake? I'm not necessarily saying that. But I will say, if you have the Spirit of Christ, you want to have the same character of Christ. Because when you see Him, you'll know that it was all worth it. All right, so that's the passion that He has. That's the result that He wants to see. But no, that's not just it. Because look at the ultimate reason the ultimate reason that He wants discerning love and excellent decision-making and pure living and abundant fruit-bearing in your life is to what end? The glory and praise of God. I believe that Paul would say the glory of God is at stake by the kind of love that you give, by the decisions that you make, By the life that you live and the fruit that you bear. Now, I'm confident Paul would say, if you go out and mess things up, it's not going to diminish the essence of God's glory. Like God's going to be glorified. He's going to be magnified. He is awesome. There's nothing going to be taken away from His character and His holiness and His purity and all of that. But I believe Paul would say, when he said the glory of God is at stake by the kind of life that you live and the fruit that you bear is that people will see His glory and magnify His glory if you bear fruit, if you make good decisions, if you love them with a discerning, abounding love, people will see the glory of God. And in seeing it, they will savor it. And in savoring it, Christ will be seen as great in this world, which is what He wants. And so He's saying, I'm praying for you to abound in discerning love, in excellent decision-making, in pure living, in abundant fruit-bearing, and this will only be done and church, this is it. If you've been kind of following a little bit of a track, you've noticed that you've got the regard that Paul has for the Philippians, you've got the request that he's making on their behalf, the result that he wants to see, the reason that he gives and the glory of God. But here, it's very important. You see the root, the root of it all is Jesus Christ. Look back down at the, the text. Because if, if you ask the question, if you ask the question, what? What does this text say about Christ? Like, how how does Christ relate to this text? Or how does this text point me to Christ? Let me read it again. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of who? Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what's excellent and so be pure and blameless for the what? Day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through who? Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so Paul essentially says, the love of Christ compels me. You see, Christ poured out His love into my heart through the Holy Spirit. And I have felt His love and I have experienced His love and I know His peace because His love has invaded and permeated my whole life. And that's why I long for you, church. And He says, I want that to be the case for you. I, I just want you to know the peace that comes in His affection. And in knowing the peace that comes in His affection, you're going to prepare yourself daily for the, for the day which the clouds are going to split, and He's going to return, and you're going to behold Him, and you will be thrilled. And then, and then He says, you're going to get everything that's coming to you by placing your trust in Him and living for Him the entirety of your lives, you're going to get to take on full, unhindered, unfettered righteousness that truly belongs to Jesus. Like You and I don't know what it's like to wake up in the morning and be perfect. We don't know what it's like to be holy. We don't know what it's like to have these competing thoughts and these competing desires and these selfish type of uh, desires that creep in and it's like they spoil even the purest things that we experience in life. We don't know what it's like not to experience that. But if you trust Christ and His account for your righteousness and you live a life of good decision making... And fruit bearing and discerning love, then when you behold him, he's gonna make you ultimately and fully and completely as perfect as he is. And you will know what that is like forever and ever and ever and ever. If that's a beautiful picture for you, say amen. Amen. Awesome, awesome. So I just wanna, I want us to just make a few applications today. I want us to consider these these primary requests that He makes. And so, if you want to ask the question, well, what, what what does the Lord really want me to do with this? Write this down, or just meditate on it if you're not a note taker. Cultivate disciplines in your life. Cultivate disciplines in your life that will produce Number one, discerning love. Cultivate disciplines in your life that will produce, number one, discerning love. And so, let me just see if anyone would be bold enough. What, what kind of disciplines could you put in your life to increase the level of discernment in your love for people? Bible study. Like if you, you say, you know what, I'm going to get in a Bible study with a group of people. I'm going to come to build on Wednesday nights or I'm going to ask a friend and we're just going to study the Bible for an hour and a half, one day a week, and we're going to walk through the Scriptures. Church, if you've got the Spirit of God, I will guarantee you that you will love people with greater discernment as a result of doing that Bible study than in the Bible study you're not doing right now. I just guarantee it. And so that's exactly what you do. What else can you do to develop discernment? Yes, that's the connection. Paul has a discerning love. And so he's passionately pursuing them. He's sacrificially loving them. And his passion for them produces prayer. Paul's passion produces prayer. And so you pray. And as you pray, God will bring illumination and He'll bring grace so that real love will abound in the body of Christ. Very good. Can we get one more way? So, you study the Bible, pray. What else can you do to develop discerning love? Yeah, we talked about this back in the summer. It's it's taking your prayer and it's taking your Bible study and then meditating on God and His Word so that you're thinking things through, you're thinking things clearly. When I was in seminary, my pre- the president of my seminary said, you need to think yourself clear and don't get in the pulpit until you have thought yourself clear. Like it's one thing to read the Word. It's one thing to pray about it. It's another thing to leave after having read and, and prayed to know precisely the principle that God is teaching you or precisely the truth that God wants you to know or precisely the kind of love that He wants you to experience. I'm pushing you towards something right here, church, that's very important it might be a little uncomfortable. But listen, Paul loved the Philippian church. He, Man, he treasured them more than any church that he treasured. There was a bond between him like no other bond that he had and he pushes them. He's saying, I love you. I thank God for you. You're generous. You're sacrificial. You're joyful. But I want you to abound in discerning love. I want you to know the truth and I want you to let that truth dictate how you love people, how you love the world. And so, I think, it's just like he says in other places. You know, you want to study the Word. You want to be ready in season and out season. Now, how to do that is you pray, you, you read, you meditate. All right, second, cultivate disciplines in your life that will produce excellent decision-making. Excellent decision-making. That, he talks about approving what is excellent. That word approving means putting to test, putting to the test to see the validity of something, to see the quality of something. In other words, he's saying, I want you to, to go about in your life making decisions, but you've got to test it. You've got to examine it. You've got to know what is best in the given moment. And to be able to do that, you've got to be full of truth, full of the Spirit, full of grace, so that you can make the best decision in that moment. You know, the fact is, church, we make decisions every day that dictate really the course of our lives. That's right. That's right. The quality of our family life. The, our ability to, to uh, worship God. Every day. And so how, how can you make excellent decisions? Well, what, what do you need to cultivate in your life to, to be an excellent decision maker? Now, Phil, if you want to be a better decision maker, what, what do you want to cultivate in your life? So I'll just take one thing that Phil said, a sense of what I'm called to and who I live for. Because, Mark, you said last week before the meal, you said we're going to have a missions offering at the end of the month. And and you said specifically, I'll, I'll paraphrase you, but you said specifically, you know the dollars that you spend between today and the end of the month has a direct implication on what our missions offering is like. And, and when that happens, then either more dollars or less dollars are going to be given to spread the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ in our community, region, and world. And so if you know that you're called to mission, to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, if you know that, that's what you're called to, then you're going to spend money and save money between now and the 29th so that you can give your money to the thing that you're called to. Right. Does that make sense? Okay, that would be an example. Okay, third, pure living. Cultivate disciplines in your life that will produce pure living. Oh, how do, you, how do you do that? What disciplines can you cultivate in your life to produce pure living? Well, it starts in the heart, and I'm not going to go into great detail about that today. It starts in the heart. You've got to want to be pure. You've got to desire purity for the sake of the glory of Christ. But I'll give you a couple practical things. Like You want to set up disciplines in your life that there are certain things that you don't do and there are certain things that you absolutely do in order to have a framework of purity in your life. Yeah. It's like a, uh, one of my brothers, uh, not blood brothers, but just brothers in Christ, I don't know, a year or two ago, was going out of town and was concerned about staying in a hotel by himself uh, with a television and all the things that are on that. And I just simply said, well, call ahead of time and have the TV taken out of that room before you get there. And that is exactly what he did. I didn't watch TV for a week. Why? Because he wanted to cultivate in his life a framework to live disciplined so he wouldn't even have the temptation to be able to see something that he should not see. You see, that's how you build disciplines. But it takes work, y'all. It takes discernment. It takes forethought, right? You can't just just float into decisions and passively wander into them and think somehow that on the other side you're going to be pure. It takes discipline. And then abundant fruit bearing. Abundant fruit bearing. That's what he called it. Cultivate disciplines in your life that will produce abundant fruit bearing. And how do you do that? I believe you ask one significant question. God, how can I decrease and You increase in my relationship with people? How can I decrease and You increase in my relationships with people? And what God will do through His Spirit is begin to reveal... Areas of selfishness. Areas where you're spending time, money, talent for yourself. And he's, God's going to say, it's going to be uncomfortable. But He's going to nudge you toward stripping away some of that selfish time, that selfish treasure, that selfish stuff, and beginning investing it in people who need time, who need your treasure, who need your ability. And when that happens, man, you are going to bear fruit like you've never borne. And in bearing fruit like you've never borne, you're going to have joy like you've never had. And having joy like you've never had, Christ is going to be magnified like he's never been magnified. And ultimately, God will be glorified in your life. And that was Paul's prayer, and that's the Holy Spirit's message to us today. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray for discerning love. We pray for an abundant, fruit-bearing life. We pray for pure living. Father, we pray that we will be disciplined enough to live lives that tend and lead toward the magnification of Your great glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.